The VLSI revolution, which triggered the expansion of Silicon Valley, is credited with making modern digital systems like cell phones and laptops possible. Lynn Conway, a professor emerita of electrical engineering and computer science at the University of Michigan, led this revolution of microchip design in the late 1970s. But the reality is, you may have never heard of her. When women and underrepresented minorities make important contributions to science or technology, why do they later disappear from history? It's a phenomenon that Professor Conway has been documenting and exploring since 2009, when the Computer History Museum held a gala naming 16 men the Valley's founding fathers. Conway wasn't invited. In fact, she didn't even know it was happening. In this episode of Re-Engineering Radio, we sat down with Professor Conway to talk about how her disappearance began long before anyone realized. So when do you think you noticed first, oh, I'm no longer really a part of this story? Well, actually, I noticed it right at the beginning of the erasure process, uh, but I hadn't grasped what was happening. So it took a while for me to begin to react at a a deeper level. When it first began happening was when George Gilder wrote his book, Microcosm, back in 1989. Gilder was a very conservative, uh, actually an evangelist uh, pundit. And when he wrote the book, he told the story about Mead, Professor Mead, as essentially the sort of... um, brilliant genius who created the modern silicon chip and and in the process really launched Silicon Valley. And although uh, Gilder mentioned my work in the book, he had apparently not grasped the nature of that work and and the impact it had had, and instead had um, theorized that the work was mostly about quantum mechanics and about the... the, uh, device physics of the transistor and the integrated circuit rather than the overall larger systemic effects. And so at first I I felt um, uneasy. And then as time went by, I began to notice that uh, people were more and more recognizing the work, much of which I had done, as having been done by this other person. Uh, And it especially became clear as the person received increasing awards, including very, very prominent ones, uh, in, in most cases for work that actually had been solely mine. And I think it's natural when you're younger, you know, at that time I was uh, around 50, and um, as, as this process really, really got going, and I, I became, I really became, um, uh, I, I had considerable angst over the process, just sort of a natural emotional reaction. And it wasn't until much later when I looked back with the experience of age on sort of how things work in the world and also sort of took a dispassionate view where the emotion wasn't there so much as curiosity, like what had happened here? I really wondered what had happened. And as I look back, uh, I began to try out ideas and test theories and, and understand better what had happened. I really began investigating it. Um, one of the things I'd done over the years is I, I've always kept a lot of things, uh, and uh, especially uh, stuff that I could keep in computer files. So I'd kept all the artifacts from the from all that work, much of which uh, demonstrated essentially the 
exponentiation of all the processes involved that generated this, this VLSI revolution. And I began inviting a lot of my colleagues from the day to uh, add to an archive I was building on the internet about the revolution. This was really just separate from this concern about what had happened to me in the history. And I began thinking more about my legacy as I got older and, and, and you know, the joy always came from the work itself. But then as you get older, you sort of think, well, you know, you went on these adventures. It'd be kind of cool for people, you know, for you to be able to, to, to share them with people. We learn some things. It'd be interesting to know about it. How do we do this? That sort of thing. And so um, as, as, as time went further, I started to combine these two things, this sort of curiosity about what had happened with the accumulating evidence and looking at what actually had happened. And in the process, uh, along with, um, you know, I really write pretty widely read in anthropology, sociology, and so forth and so on, and have been aware of, of a lot of the emergent work and a lot of past work on the issues of the winner's right to history and all of that sort of thing. And, and I was aware of, of Margaret Rossiter's um, really amazing uh, three-volume series, uh, Women's Scientists in America, that covers uh, a span of really several hundred years of the history of individual women's stories, what they contributed, and how those stories almost always ended up with the work being attributed to men and with them sort of disappearing from the projected history. Right, and she coins the term the Matilda yeah, she, effect. She coined the term Matilda effect um, and basically just so well documented these case studies, if you will, that it was clear something really uh, significant was going on. The question really is, relates to, well, what is an innovation? Uh, what do, how, is, how do they spread and propagate? And then as a separate process, how do credits for the innovation get assigned? And how do those credits get propagated? And I began seeing those as two separate processes. But long and interested in innovation and propagation of innovations, and that interest really was uh, foundational to the paradigm-shifting revolution that I launched because that revolution was launched with a lot of that thought in mind, really is an experiment with doing it. Sort of view it as uh, Garfinkel's ethnomethodology in the large, sort of a, a large social experimentation where you're interactively, you're not building theory, you're, you're actually engaging a system and, and manipulating and engaging it in order to figure out how it works, namely the, the, the propagation of innovations. So it's interesting, I began to more clearly see that that innovation process is obviously separate from the credit assignment process. And one of the reasons it's so obvious in my case is no one actually knew what I was doing at the time. Because, uh, you know, I, I went to MIT and I was long fascinated with the MIT hacks. I never did a great hack while I was there, but I taught a course. The students there thought they were learning the latest methods of silicon chip design from Silicon Valley, when in fact, they were new methods not used in Silicon Valley. But since the methods worked at MIT, that created a lot of noise in Silicon Valley. Like, what is this? This is, look what MIT has done. So there was a series of things that were like that, where I would kind of get something going 
but it would automatically be credited to an institution. In tradecraft, that's that's known as a false flag operation. So it's like, I, I'm sailing the ship of this course at MIT, but the flag is MIT. So you're actually teaching your innovation to these students before it even arrives in Silicon Valley. Exactly. And that was, that. that's part of, an, of you see, a, a kind of effort in foisting something and experimentally engaging a social system to see what you can get going. Now, you know, aside from that, obviously one can question all sorts of things, ethics, morality, blah, blah, blah. But I, I, I see this in the abstract as this is just, this is just how knowledge gets generated and displaces other knowledge. It's an evolutionary process. So I'm taking an abstract, dispassionate, experimental role here. Okay. Now, following on to that, when I went back to zero, I was faced with the challenge, well, what could we, what could we, the little team I put together, do next? Because all of a sudden, because MIT had done this course, a lot of other universities wanted to tell, teach such a course. And I thought, how could I spread this to other universities? And that's when I came up with this idea of an e-commerce system where we would provide a server that if all the schools synchronize their courses using the course notes I prepared for my course at MIT, they would run exactly the same course on the same script, you see. And we could, behind the scenes, prepare to fabricate all the chips. So I announced that over the ARPANET in the early summer of 1979 that if any of these research universities that were on the ARPANET, much like the internet, wanted to run an MIT-like course, we at Park, in collaboration with Hewlett-Packard, would gather up all their files via the ARPANET, and we would get them printed into silicon and get the chips diced up, packaged, and sent back to all the students. And so it's an MIT course being run at more universities, and Xerox Park, Hewlett-Packard, and DARPA running the ARP in it. It's as though they are going to get all this stuff done for the students. So I announced this, and um, from inside Xerox, it wasn't clear that any this any of this was anything but a toy thing. You know, we had our own mission there in, in this group, but this was run on a shoestring as bootleg within our group. Now, that cor those courses all worked. We got all the chips turned around in one month from when, when those files were sent to where all the students got packaged chips. And there were uh, a dozen universities and like 129 uh, different students. And so what does allowing them to have those chips mean? Here, here, think about it this way. Up until then, in Silicon Valley, sort of unbeknownst or, or invisible to a lot of folks in the universities even, the only people that that could design the very complex chips that were being implemented at the handful of companies like Intel were the people who knew a bit about computer system design or computer architecture who had to be working within those semiconductor houses. So what that's like is this. It's as if the printing press had been invented, but you couldn't be an author unless you worked for the printing house. Now, what if printing presses were somehow owned and, and run by a handful of people, and they would find a market, let's say, for political pamphlets. Well, all you get printed would be political pamphlets. Those would start to dominate what's read. It's like microprocessors. But there are a lot of more things in political pamphlets you can create. You can create novels in the end. You see books, magazines, newspapers, all kinds of things that have different participants in who designs the patterns to be printed. So. The whole idea was to create a freedom of the silicon press by making 
budding computer and digital system architects, enabling them to realize that if they could learn how to design a chip and could find over the internet a place they could print it, that would completely explode the number of different kinds of things being done digitally. And thus allowing the growth of Silicon Valley. And the, and the thing about this example is, what you have to realize is in that MPC-79 event, where those dozen universities did this, there were some amazing system-level chips being designed. So when we look back on all that, that that's the story that seems to have been missed. See, the, the fact that these things were being done, but nobody realized who was doing it. What was amazing is a few months after that, I went down to Caltech and I was talking, talking with some of his graduate students. Someone came running up, Lynn, Lynn, did, did, did you see Mead's design rules? Have you, what? So, you know, what can you say? I mean, this reminds me of some of the things we see going on even now, you know. You have to realize I didn't have a PhD. I'm a woman working in this lab. Mead actually was my consultant. So I was really, I was actually in charge of the project. But from the viewpoint of these students at Caltech and, and Mead, uh, obviously, where would ideas like this come from? What happened then, this is the key, I just stopped telling him my good idea. So he didn't know, he didn't know what was happening at MIT. And he had no idea what was happening in MPC-79. You know, the, the meta level, why it was being done, how it was being done, because that all had to do with kind of advanced thinking, not just in computer science, but also in sociology and anthropology and so forth, um, and in the diffusion of innovations and so forth, and seeing an opportunity for blitzscaling provided by uh, the ARPANET combined with the kind of personal network computing we had at PAR. So you could sort of think of that burst out as the thing that was an exemplar of all that. You've talked before about how it's easy to explain something like this with kind of a good and evil narrative and saying, you know, it's, it's just, it's bad men erasing good women, but that's not really the case. There no. are much bigger things at play here, like like we mentioned the Matilda effect, this right. bias against acknowledging women's contributions right. in science and instead attributing those contributions to their male colleagues, which is exactly what happened. In recent years, as I look back on all this, I can see there are no good guys, bad guys. Trying to tell stories that way tremendously biases thinking away from observing what's actually going on. And the critical thing is that very often when an innovation is made, it isn't noticed as such. There's, there's been a lot of study about this, a lot of it in the evolution of culture and animals, and I was very familiar with all that back in the day, at that time, what was known up to that time. And the thing of note is that if you are observing and you spot an innovation in, in a simple animal culture that doesn't have many, you may notice something that's, that it has been done and then you might feel a track its propagation. And there were a lot of studies of that where some of the simple properties of what's happening, observation, imitation, and so forth, become known. So there's a, there's a body of, of, of knowledge that can be drawn on there which abstracts away this idea that an innovation is necessarily a, um, a stroke of genius that's then handed down. And only an expert does it. Quite often it's the, it's the reverse, it's the inverse. It's someone new to a scene who stumbles into an idea that causes connections to be made that weren't made before. 
connections would make everything simpler. So this all had more to do with that, less to do with genius, expert, uh, PhD, knows quantum mechanics, and more about childlike, playful, fooling around with stuff, and then going, oh my God, ah, I see something we could do here. And that leads you into MIT hack kind of thinking. And the coolness of it is to do something that's so startling and stunning that people can't stop thinking about it and trying to figure out how did how was that done? They don't think about who did it. It's, it's more, how was it even done? That gets you thinking more about the innovation. So the part that's interesting is if you, you, if you start mixing up who did it with what is it, you start thinking more about who did it and, and oh, aren't they great, rather than, wow, look at this. Look, what is it? How does it work? And much more important, how is it done? And so when we, when we step back now and think about all the priority disputes and all the things that have happened, and, and we also notice, like in Rossiter's work, women are making these kind of innovations, but their names don't get associated with it. A lot of times it's because the innovation isn't seen as innovation until it comes out of the mouth or words of someone who is expected to make innovations. At that point, it becomes theirs. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, when they heard it from someone who wasn't expected to make innovations, guess what? They wouldn't have even noticed it then. The seed would have been planted for them to think it's their own idea. Right. So it's kind of, it's this vicious recurring cycle of, Absolutely. of women in science and, and STEM creating innovation or being playing a part in innovation, being kind of silenced or erased from that history. Right. And then we start over where we feel like we're recruiting more women to science because right. women have left science. Right. And then they it, contribute and then they're erased and then they leave and again and correct. again. In fact, that's the part of it that I find most disturbing is the difficulty in breaking that cycle. And the cycle is involves uh, generational effects such as if each generation of men and women are taught when they're, you know, in high school and college and then early careers that women can contribute, let's bring them in, okay? Then you have this thing that we now are going to change this. And then none of those men who are actually still in power, especially as they go forward, think that any of the women before have ever done anything. So as the women who have just been brought in aren't noticed <laughs> by as they age with the men who are rising up who think the women before couldn't do anything, that also ropes into the women that just came in. Well, they're just the first. Eventually, they might do something, you see? So this whole intergenerational process continues. So, so, so there's really a profound need for a culture change where women themselves expect themselves to be able to make innovations. And that will only happen when everyone gets a little more of a grasp about what innovations really are and how they're made and, and gets experience making them and gets experience seeing whether they propagate or not. A lot of them don't. <laughs> and, and, and there's a relationship with entrepreneurship here because creating innovations has a certain aspect of entrepreneurship to it but minus all the sort of business savvy or trying to reach a market. But there's a similar thing. It's, it's attempting to create something that will propagate into an existing substrate, that it will be picked up and imitated, will, will 
exponentiate. But, but unfortunately, in our traditional academic system, which has this sort of elitist properties to it, there's another dimension, which is almost that you can only, you're only going to begin making innovations when, when you get a PhD, because no one who doesn't have a PhD now is expected to make an innovation, which is kind of ridiculous. But this is sort of within the university framework. And so there's another thing that's providing uh, drag on the, on the system. Of, you have to also be credentialed to make innovations, when uh, I don't think that's the case at all, because there are many innovations that can be, be really foundational in areas where it's simply a connections made that suddenly solves some huge problem. And so more focus ought to go into that. And then noticing there are areas that are complicated, you need to know more about the history of it, the details of it, in order to add something to it. So do you feel like, is this getting better? Do you think we've seen strides in this area of, of recognition? Well. There's a good question, but let me frame that in the same way as an intergenerational process and so I think, well, where are we headed? One thing about where we're headed is all the processes of social change are accelerating as we're able to deploy more and more uh, mechanization of mathematics in our machinery and can accomplish quick-turn tasks. You know, when you think back to MPC-79, all of a sudden you can, you can get an idea, you can express it, uh, symbolically in, in, in sort of a geometric mathematical structure. You can get it printed in silicon, and voila, you have a highly complex abstract machine that does stuff. And, and, and that, that process then led to those things being uh, ropeable into making it easier to do the design of even more complicated machines. So you have processes exponentiating that make everything turn quicker. So there's sort of interesting problems with that because as we implement things, the machinery, the apparatus, the AIs, all of this, the stuff we're generating, once it's out there, it's history. We're implementing the past, you see? And now that's a drag on changing. So why are we even having a discussion about crediting? See, you come at this, let's make an innovation. Why are we worried about crediting? What, what difference does it make? I mean, if there are other ways to have people gain um, essentially social credit, ensure some form of security, as long as people are enjoying doing really cool things on teams to do innovations, you'll get a lot of innovation going on. And the one thing that will happen in the future that hasn't happened as much in the past, if you look at my story, people will have detailed records of their innovations. See, the reason what I'm saying has some credibility is all this stuff has been preserved. I have all my emails back to when I was at Park. I have I have all all the vast files that were involved in in all of the activities at MIT and the dozen universities or so of MPC seventy nine. So, in the end, instead of worrying about getting credit, what what good is credit going to do you in a way? Does anybody now really want to be famous when you look at what famous <laughs> means? You see, so living and having an, an opportunity if you are an innovator to get on to new teams to do new innovations. That's what you should live for. So instead of thinking you're going to get rewarded, maybe the inverse should be the case, that, that your, your, your sort of social standing as, as a cool team member is what you're trying to do. And you get that by making a track record of the work you did. 
the whole idea of these big awards and everything as, as actually being extremely elitist and off-putting to all the other people who really, in the end, want to be able to look back on having done great adventures. I could see a lot of progress being made in enabling more and more people to live very meaningful, fulfilling lives and participating in rates of change that are productive and are diverse and that are relevant to very localized situations all around the world. If ways could gradually be found to shift from some of the traditional quote-unquote reward systems and have people begin to see where they are in the unfolding evolution of these large technosocial systems and noticing that more people play a more profound role in all of this than think they do. See, they're already constantly making decisions about what they're doing and how they do things, but they don't see the impact of it because our society has sort of uh, flatlanded everything to where people think it's only the people who get media coverage or who become famous, who actually have really cool lives. A lot of the kids coming up don't see well, what's their future going to hold. It's too bad more of it doesn't somehow reveal the great adventures to be had if we can be a little more relaxed, have a little more fun, do a little more innovating, and sort of be more open and honest about trying to think of cool things to do and noticing whether they work or not, and constantly scanning the horizon and notice what other people have done. One of the ways to, to really innovate is to notice a lot of stuff boiling up in different silos and all of a sudden see a chance if I mix these three or four silos together, bingo, we've got something. So that would get people thinking more outside their silos, following curiosities and all kinds of other things. So I follow curiosities and all kinds of things, and maybe it was just that weird mix of those that allowed me to kind of stumble onto weird ideas that other people wouldn't have gotten, who were, you know, experts in quantum mechanics, for example, <laughs> but hadn't studied a lot else. And I think our universities need to... Uh, really reflect on what's happening in them and uh, the roles that they're going to play in somehow helping reshape the way more and more people are brought into the system, you know, together evolving and shifting our environments and everything we do so that life is cooler and we're better able to deal with contingencies and fewer and fewer percentage of people are just sidelined and marginalized and made non-participants, which is sadly kind of where we are now. It's almost like everybody's turned into observers and consumers, rather than participants and makers. Thanks for listening. And hey, one more thing before you go. Please subscribe to Re-Engineering Radio. And if you have a minute, drop us a review. See you next time.